Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Alan Knudsen, founder and CEO of Sun Homes. Housing development today is backwards in a bunch of ways. You got to pull power lines that attach to on-grid electricity, which costs tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars. You got to hook up to sewage, to water. You got to pull in natural gas and propane takes. And these are some of the reasons why housing development projects take years, sometimes even decades, to go from start to finish. Sunhomes changes that completely by providing net zero off-grid utility services. In other words, providing the infrastructure, solar panels, geothermal heating, right? Literally heating and cooling from the ground, digging holes for water and sewage, all of these things so that housing developments can go from start to finish in a couple months or a few years instead of many, many years, and for way less cost to you and the environment. And so in the episode, Alan and I will discuss what exactly started his fascination with the world of off-grid utilities, batteries, solar, and all that fun stuff, the different ways that housing development today is totally backwards, how Sun Homes completely changes the game and wins on all of those fronts, from energy efficiency, long-term costs, and of course, sustainability. And finally, the moonshot potential for a company like Sun Homes. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alan Knudsen, founder and CEO of Sun Homes. Alan, welcome to the show. Great to be on. So Alan, we have a lot of ground to cover today. And I think on a couple fronts, a special project you're working on, what the core focus of Sun Homes is. But let's start with the fundamentals. What is Sun Homes? Sure. So Sun Homes, Sun Homes is a utility service provider for off-grid subdivisions. So sewer, power, water for net zero off-grid homes. And the net zero part is actually a really big piece of it for us. Because when we started, we were really struggling to get that net zero part. It turns out it's really hard to decarbonize completely. But yeah, that's what we do. Off-grid utilities for net zero subdivisions. Wow. So let's actually unpack that a little bit further. Because I don't believe most of our audience is keen on what some of those keywords mean. So maybe in, in layman's terms, define why what you're working on is a big deal and how that manifests in a physical product. Sure, sure. So off-grid meaning you don't have city water, you don't have city sewer, you don't have power lines. So everything you use on site is produced on site. So you drill a well, you pump water out of the ground, you filter it, use it at the house, it goes into the septic system, typically an advanced septic treatment system where we can reuse that water once it's done. All of the power is generated through solar panels, it's stored in batteries, and then we use geothermal HVAC systems to heat and cool the house and produce all the domestic hot water. The off-grid part is there's no power lines, no water lines, no sewer lines. The net zero part is it's all running on solar there's no propane or natural gas. There's no carbon-based fuels that created the electricity. It's a completely self-sustaining home or subdivision. This is insane. And we'll get into how it compares to the status quo today. But what surprises me most is all of the different uh, areas of complexity you outline 
people spend lifetimes focusing on each puzzle piece. So yeah. if we back up, help the listeners understand how exactly you became apprised of the problem area and then equipped yourself with the life experiences, the know-how <laughs> sure, to sure. do all of the above. It was really nice. My dad, my dad's a real estate developer. And so from when I was knee high, I was watching him pull in utilities for large-scale subdivisions. He'd buy 500 acres of land in the middle of nowhere and spend the next decade or two decades bringing in sewer, power, water, internet, everything you need to build the first home. And so when I was in high school, my dad came to me and said, hey, solar and batteries starting to kind of be a thing. That's 2008, 2009. Why don't you design me a solar and battery system for this when I'm drilling? Because if I pull a power line out, it's going to be an $80,000 power line. So solar and battery has to be cheaper than that. Solar and battery was still way more expensive than that. So like we never made that project work, but I was 16 and that's when I started designing, you know, solar and battery systems. Okay. So it's not exactly what you hear from the, the childhood experience of uh, a teenager. I'm looking on your LinkedIn. It looks like you parlayed both this skill set and fascination into kind of a many year installation, something that you just yeah. became like the go-to solar guy. So tell me once you became a quote unquote adult, what were the <laughs> yeah. first couple experiences you dipped your toes into and, and sure. how that, that crossroads with solar? So when I graduated high school, I was 18 and I started a solar company with my dad. So we were just your run of the mill. We sold solar panel systems. We installed them for homeowners. Did not do very well. We ran the company for three or four years and it, we shut down because we really didn't have anything unique about our company. There's a million solar installers that do exactly the same thing. That's a really hard market to compete in, as it turns out. But we got a really good basis for the solar industry by doing that. And then after my time there, I actually worked for a primary residential mortgage for about six months. I helped them start their solar loan division. So we went to the mortgage industry and we actually wrote the guidelines on their Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, mortgage products specifically for solar. So we were trying to come up with a, a solution to the finance problem. We, we came up with a pretty good one. So after we left PRMI, I had a stint at a marketing company and they used machine learning to target their marketing. And we, we were building our first off-grid home like a nights and weekend project for my brother-in-law. And like the biggest problem was like he forgot to do stuff. Like the system would run perfectly, but like the house was designed to run on power or propane. And if the storm was coming, he was supposed to switch it to propane and he never did. <laughs> so the, the problem was like the homeowner not paying attention occasionally ran out of power. And it turns out machine learning is a perfect solution to that problem. You really ought to have a computer watching the weather and determining how your system performs. So we, I left that company and I went and ran solar operations for two other solar companies. And we were just honing in on how do we get the installs down? How do we get the costs down? At the second company, I started to develop some patents around extending battery life for off-grid homes. So a lot of nights and weekends, just researching how batteries age, we figured out how to make batteries last 30 years for an off-grid home instead of 10, which is your typical lithium ion battery. So we filed some patents. I, I quit that job, raised a little bit of seed money from some friends and family and, and started Sun Homes. And that's where we began 18 months ago. Wow. Okay. So the, <laughs> yeah, it's the IP, Sorry. no, this is amazing. Really what's interesting 
I don't know why. What, what's top of mind right now is all this craze around NFTs. You have our, what is his name, Beeple, who spent 13 years making a digital painting every single year. And today is the first day of his Christie's auction. And that's already many million dollars is the highest bid. And it proves people say, it's just one JPEG. How is it worth so much? And really, <laughs> it's 13 years of right. him evolving from amateur to, to legend, mastering <laughs> his craft. And what's interesting here is you developed IP and Sun Homes is the how you're thinking about commercializing the IP effectively. That's right. Yeah. And so Sun Homes, actually, when we started, all we were going to do is build a better inverter battery system for off-grid homes. And we went to, we had it all designed, we priced it out. We went to Solar Power International in uh, 2019 and we met a company called Lion Energy. And they had designed the exact inverter and battery that I was designing spec for spec. And they were eight months eight months closer to launch and they were about 20% less than I thought I could build it. So we dropped all of our plans that day. We shook hands with them and said we'd be their first customer and we would focus on the energy management system for the home because that really gave us 12 to 18 months faster uh, route to market. And, and so fast forward to today, we're their biggest customer. I think we've installed 52 of their inverters and 68 of their batteries in the last three or four months since their product officially released. Holy crap, man. So what I want to do is paint a clear picture of incumbent infrastructure. Sure. And sure. why your approach why Sun Homes is such a big deal. Okay, so there's really two or three different problems. So the first one is capacity. It's, it's a capacity issue. And, and Texas this week's a great example of this. When you build a power grid, you have to build it for the worst possible situation in the life of that power grid. And your average usage on that power grid might only be 5 to 10% of what the worst possible case scenario is. And so what you have is an infrastructure problem. You have a massive amount of infrastructure per customer because if we all turn it on at the same time because it gets really cold outside, you break the system. And so we say when we're we kind of tease utility companies once in a while, we go to we went to our local utility company, Garcane, and we said, if power was free, how much less expensive would your power be? Like how much would my power bill go down? And they all kind of laughed and they said 15%. If electricity were free, your power bill would only go down 15%. Um, the other 85% is power line, overhead, um, cost of maintenance over time, employees. I mean, it's just, it's not a cost of power problem. It's an infrastructure problem. And so we always come back to them like, okay, because their fight is solar is not the lowest cost of power, especially when you have to have batteries to get a 24-hour cycle. So you're right but it is the lowest cost of infrastructure. It doesn't solve the low cost power problem. It solves the infrastructure problem. Interesting. I pay right now X dollars a month to make sure I have electricity and heat. Yeah. yeah. And baked into that cost is the pure cost of power plus the employees that have to maintain it, the physical infrastructure. Right, right. And you're saying, sure, power to power, apples to apples, solar is a, a little bit more expensive, but- the fully baked in cost is much less because you're we're building a resilient, self-sustaining infrastructure. That's right. So that's one problem is the infrastructure cost. And that that is actually a two-part cost. So as a developer, my dad would pay impact fees. So 
if his land was far away from the utility company, he would pay anywhere between half a million and $3 million to pull a power line to his land. And then you pay an impact fee for every home that hooks up, which is between $1,500 and $3,000 per home. <laughs> and then you have your power bill. <laughs> wow. Okay. So um, that's number one. So that's infrastructure. It's a big problem. Number two is speed. So that takes a really long time to pull a mile of power line out. You have to negotiate with 18 different landowners between you and the power company. It might be a multi-year project just to get the infrastructure to your site. And so kind of our example of this, when we were building our first off-grid home, my dad had foreclosed on 10 acres of land that he had taken as collateral. He didn't want the land. It was in the middle of nowhere. There was no chance on earth to bring utilities in. She said, hey, why don't we do an off-grid home? We've never done one. So we got him a quote together. And it was, a, it was insanely expensive. <laughs> I mean, I, I think we were 52,000 on the solar and battery. We had to do a $65,000. We did a, you know, a $10,000 septic system. And I gave him that quote and he said, okay, we're doing it because that's cheaper than pulling out utilities. The thing that kind of switched in my mind was my dad was 15 years into a 20 year development. And when I say a 20 year development, 20 years from when he bought the land to when he got to build the first house. And within 120 days of say and go, we were able to build an off-grid home with sewer power water and sell the home in 120 days at a profit. Um, oh my God. And so this was like the point of no return for me was kind of comparing those two development models. It's how fast you could bring uh, land to market if you were able to build it off-grid with off-grid utilities. Oh my God. Okay. So I have to... I'm going to ask something. Okay. Is, this is this is more reactive than thinking through second and third order effects. But when you compare the impact potential uh-huh. of Sun Homes versus incumbent methods. So day to day, the ongoing externalities of how we develop projects and power them today is not good at all. Yeah. Sun Homes wins on every front. <laughs> right. I wonder though, is the 20 year delta a, a, a potentially good thing because you're developing less? Like I'm wondering, you know, how, how you think through, this is more of a reactive thought. I'm trying to process all the above, but if we can develop more, I guess, what are your thoughts on comparing it to what would have happened and what is now going to happen when you compare like the time to, to market and development and all that? There's a lot of follow on effects from that. So the third thing that makes developing real estate really expensive is how long it takes. So if it takes 15 to 20 years and it's millions of dollars out, if you're developing a large section of land, and then you don't know if it's going to work. And so you're taking like high risk for multiple decades. And so on the back end, what happens is you, if you, if it worked, you're the only one in the market and you get to make an absolute killing. This is what leads to real estate bubbles. Actually. So if you can bring land to market really quickly, you can deflate real estate bubbles. So there's a lot of follow on effects of like how this works, but like one of the biggest reasons that land cost gets expensive is it's really easy to predict when you're going to be able to develop a new set of land. So like my little city that I live in, St. George, Utah, it grows 2% a year. And that is considered like the five fastest in the nation, 2% a year. And so it's really easy to look out on the edges of St. George and say, okay, in the next 15 years, this little slice of land all the way around the city is going to be developable. Everything past that's a 50-year problem. There's no way to develop that. And so what you have is like that little slice of land that's easily developable. 
gets bought up speculatively and it drives that price up. And so like a common thing we see in our area, if you're within one mile of utilities, you might be $100,000 per acre. If you're within two miles of utilities, you're $10,000 per acre. Wow. Wow. And so our development model, you can go buy that $10,000 per acre dirt. And then unlike my dad who took 20 years to bring it to market, you can bring that to market in, you know, one to two years. And it's really a way to solve affordable housing more than anything. There's other really weird side effects of this. The reason you have small lots is you bought really expensive land and then you had really high infrastructure costs. And so you make the lot as small as possible to lower the cost per home. But with wow. our system, it's inexpensive to develop a full acre. So now you can do one acre lots with housing on it because all of the rural land is available. It's available to develop. It's inexpensive. Our cost for a one acre home, a home on one acre versus 10 acres is the same. Um, so you develop so, differently. So question for you. This is just a kind of a high level question. As of right now, where does supply and demand sit today? Is there not enough housing to fit population growth? Like what, what is the current macro state of affairs? In America, I don't know all of America. In Utah, there's no supply and infinite demand. We had, so in St. George, we had 600 homes on the market last month. We sold 900 homes. And so there's not even one month of inventory of homes on the market. Um, talking to some of my real estate buddies, or realtors, they said uh, to buy a home in St. George, you have to offer 10% over appraisal in cash and you have to do it in under 24 hours to get a to get an offer accepted. And a lot of this is because of COVID that kind of pushed people from the cities into more rural areas like St. George. Mm -hmm. But this is happening all over the country in different areas. And it's impossible to bring land to market quickly. We talk to other developers, there are customers, and every development in Southern Utah sold out. In other words, all of the available homes, all of the available land is gone. And every developer we know is outbidding on raw land because they have to start another 20-year development cycle because wow. everything that was developable easily is developed. So what I'd love to do is walk our listeners through either a project you finished. I know we were over email, we were exchanging some notes on what you were tinkering on, but to the extent that you're able to walk us through what one of these projects looks like end to end so we can get a taste for how much better economical and sustainable it is compared to what the status quo is. Sure. So we're working on a project right now. It's up on a cliff. So there's a town called Hurricane, Utah. It has a fault line down the middle and there's, it's called Hurricane Hill. It's a 500 foot cliff. In the town, you have utilities, but on the cliff, you don't. It has the most beautiful view of Zion's National Park on Earth, and there's like thousands of acres of land on top of it. The problem is to build the first house, it'd be $23 million to pull up sewer power and water because the cliff is the problem. So to connect it to the city, which is literally only two minutes driving time from the top of the cliff, it's, it's just down the hill. It's so expensive. That land has been undeveloped for the last 30 years when the rest of this city is booming. So we're looking at a project up there right now where we are going to go in and drill wells, put in pumps, pump the water up. You store it in a water tank, typically 200 to 300,000 gallon water tank. You treat it. So you have to have some kind of a filter system. 
And then you have to pressurize it so that you can have flow to the homes and you can, you know, run a fire fire truck, basically. That's how we handle the water. All of our power for that is running on solar and battery because we don't have power lines. The sewer is another big problem on top of this hill. It's the most expensive utility to extend out from the city. And so I think half of the 23 million was just getting the sewer up the hill and then the impact of adding more people to the sewer system in the city. So what we're doing is $20,000 systems. It's an average of $20,000 per home. And what it does is it's a septic tank and then a secondary set of filters and the water that comes out of that you can use for landscaping. 30 homes go on a single system and then all of the common areas are irrigated by the, the treated sewer. Wow. Yeah. Um, the other problem we have is it's fairly high up. It's pretty cold in the winter. Um, there's no natural gas, like there's no infrastructure. And so the only way we've been able to solve that historically was with propane. And and propane is not carbon neutral. <laughs> and, and so the biggest addition to our system, the thing that makes us truly net zero is we just started doing geothermal systems. A geothermal system. How does system that work? You, yeah. Yeah. Brief overview. Uh, you dig a hole in the ground <laughs> and there's a lot of different ways to dig that hole, but you dig a very long hole in the ground, you put piping in it, and then you circulate water down into the ground and back up and you use that to run your HVAC system. So a typical HVAC system pulls heat out of the air and puts it in your house or in the summer, it pulls heat out of your house and puts it out into the air. The problem we were running into, we had this in a subdivision we did, they're, they're called air source heat pumps. When it gets very hot or very cold outside, like it just did in Texas, they get inefficient. So the colder it gets, the worse they run. And so like your problem in Texas is you would rather have a little space heater if it's zero degrees outside than an air source heat pump. A geothermal system is also called a ground source heat pump. And the idea is the ground is 50 degrees year round. And so you're always pulling from a stable temperature. So it doesn't matter if it's 120 degrees outside or if it's negative 10, your system's going to run at peak efficiency year round because it's using the stable temperature of the earth as the source. Okay. So I have to ask Alan. Okay. So for example, with the geothermal, I think I saw, I don't know, a couple of days ago, Dandelion Energy raised yeah, a many million- great. Millions of dollars to focus on just that. 30 million. That's right. So tell me how <laughs> Sun Homes can do that. Sewage, all yeah. uh, electricity. How, how can you pull all of the above? So here's the secret. There's three pieces. The first one is we're building the control system. We're not building each of the individual components. Uh, we're using off-the-shelf parts, and we're just controlling it with a very intelligent energy management system for the home that controls all the different parts of the system. The second part is we're primarily targeting new construction. So Dandelion, for instance, is primarily targeting retrofit. When you build the home from the ground up, you can design the home the right way so that the system works perfectly. Whereas Dandelion has to go in and regardless of how the home was built, designed, or degraded over time, they have to address that home's needs. And then the third one is scale, weirdly enough. And it's scale and geographic density. So like one of the big problems with solar, one of the big problems with dandelion even, 
is they're servicing a massive amount of customers. It's like Dandelion said, they have 500 customers across New York and Connecticut. We have subdivisions that we're working with where we're going to have 3,000 customers in one zip code. And so our, our benefits of scale are so much higher because we're building every single home in that development and servicing every single home in that development. Massively reduce our labor costs, our long-term maintenance costs. So like the other problem like that we were running into when we were doing just solar and battery, nine times out of 10 when we showed up, we were solving a water heater problem <laughs> or we were solving a uh, pump problem or we were solving an HVAC problem. We were almost never, it was not a power problem. It was, it was a mechanical room problem. And, and it would break our systems all the time. If your fridge stops working, your fridge will consume three to four times as much electricity and it'll drain your battery and you run out of power. Same with your HVAC system, same with your water heater. Any one of those components not operating the way they're supposed to will break your off-grid system. And we were running into this. And so we finally came to the conclusion, we need to design, monitor, and control everything inside the mechanical. Otherwise, we won't know when the system's broken until the customer has been out of power for a few hours. So does this central management system, it hooks up to those appliances as well? It knows if something's wonky with the fridge or other power intensive appliances within the home? Yeah. So we're starting with the mechanical room itself. In off-grid, we have a pressure pump. You don't typically have that in on-grid, a hot water heater, heating and cooling, and the power supply. So the inverter battery system. So we're controlling all of those basically through a Modbus communication to each component. And then we're giving the homeowner an app that shows each of those units, what their power usage is, what their hot water usage is, what their heating and cooling is looking like, basically. Right now, what we're doing is we're recommending specific appliances. Like you need this relatively high efficiency appliance for your stove, for your dryer, for your fridge. But we want to get to the point where we have a basically an internet of things like through Samsung Smart Hub connection to those units and we can actually track them as part of our system. But our inverter system tracks all the power for the home. And so it's pretty easy for us to tell when something's going wrong outside of the mechanical room because we can identify all the power usage in the mechanical room, which is about 85% of the home's power. And so it, it, it's pretty easy for us to isolate where the problem is. This is really interesting. Uh, if you look at, I liked how you contrasted your approach versus Dandelion's. And I know there's many other utilities, startups that are popping up, but in Dandelion's case, they it becomes a very services intensive model because you're Massive. going in and the problem set, while probably similar in some cases, will, will be fundamentally different in every single case. Yeah. And what's interesting is we've had similar criticisms. What happens if Tesla does what you're doing? Dandelion is a good competitor on geothermal. Maybe Tesla is your good competitor on solar and battery. And the answer is you have to do the whole system and you have to do it for all of the homes in this one area. And you have to service that only for off-grid. The funny thing is most of the investors we've talked to say the complexity is the problem, but the really smart investors we've talked to is the complexity is the answer. So how let's talk about the, the 3000 home project, right? Yeah. Yep. So there is an immense amount of capital buy-in required from probably quite a few stakeholders. Yep. <laughs> talk us through how a project of that nature manifests. Who do you work with? 
to enable it, to de-risk the work that you're going to put in. It, are all of 3,000 homes, is, are you working with a couple development partners and they already know with some degree of certainty that homeowners want these homes? Walk us through the sure, kind of like sure. challenge map. It seems very hard. There's a lot of components. None of them are particularly hard. <laughs> it's just, but there's a lot. So you have the developer, that's the person who bought all of the land. Typically, really easy to work with the developer because they don't want to spend millions and millions of dollars to pull on utilities decades in advance of actually generating cash flow. So the developer is usually on board. <laughs> like that one's, that one's easy. Um, the next one is the city or the municipality or the county. So now you have to go talk to the sewer district, the water district, the power company, and basically get their approval to do it. That one is a little bit more complicated, but surprisingly, we've had great feedback from all of them. And part of it is we offer to let them own it. So if they would like to own the sewer power and water system, we will build it, maintain it, and deliver it to them after five years. They can buy us out once we've proven that it works. And so they're pretty, there's not a lot of downside for them. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And in fact, some of our best partners are cities and municipalities because they'll recommend us to subdivisions that they can't service well. And then you have the builders. And so we've spent a huge amount of time with builders, especially recently. The builders don't want you to change anything. And if you would, like, they'd really appreciate it if you didn't change their costs at all. Our biggest focus with builders is how do we take the box that they work in and add solar, geothermal, solar thermal to that? without changing anything for them. And basically our approach is like, anything that wouldn't normally go inside your cost breakdown, we'll finance separately as an additional, as a power bill. So like your cost breakdown to build in an off-grid subdivision versus in town is gonna be the same. Any additional is now that customer's power bill. And then like from a process standpoint, we basically need to pre-assemble the mechanical room, drop it on site after the foundation's poured, bolt it in, and then the builder builds around it. So you have to get out of the way of the builder because they just want to build their home. And then the homeowner, and this is the part we have the least experience with, which is interesting because these developments take a long time. Even when you do them super fast, they take a long time. And we're an 18 month old company. Your quality of life for that customer has to be the same or better than being on grid, number one. And it has to be as reliable or more than being on grid, number two. And has to be more affordable. <laughs> like, it has to be cheaper, better, and more durable. Uh, it, it, and, and that's the answer. Like, there's no other answer. <laughs> uh, and weirdly enough, like, they want to be able to see it. One of the things that's shocked me about homeowners is they hate getting a power bill and not knowing why they used so much power or a water bill or a heat bill, like a propane bill, and, and trying to figure out what happened. It's like we had one builder, they do a huge amount of homes every year. And I said, what if we were able to, you know, heat your pool with our geothermal? And he sent me back a page long text about how one time his kids left the pool heater on and it was a propane pool heater. And they didn't know for six weeks until their house was out of propane. And $2,500 bill later, no heat in their house. That was when they realized that they had left the propane heater on. And just being able to see that stuff like that you're using more power than you should be is going to be a massive value add because no utility company has that in a really in-depth way yet. Okay. Dude, I am pr I'm pretty mind blown. First of all, I'm super impressed how much you've been able to accomplish in just a short 18 months. But clearly, you've been doing this your whole life. A long time. This is a culmination <laughs> yeah. of, of a lifetime of experience and obsession. One more thing around 
how it interfaces with the homeowner. So you talked about making recommendations around certain types of appliances that should end up in the home. Yeah. Is the homeowner making that decision or is the builder making kind of bulk decisions for the different homes that they're going to, to sprung up? So basically we give them a, a guideline. We give it to the homeowner and the builder because sometimes it's the builder, sometimes it's the homeowner. And the guideline is basically this. If you put if you put a resistive water heater, a, a 10,000 watt resistive water heater, which is pretty typical. If you put this in your home, we will raise the price of your system $15,000 because we need more solar panels, more battery and more inverters to support that. And the resistive water heater is 700 bucks. To put in like an empty tank and let and, and a heat exchanger and let our geothermal system do all of the hot water, it's like a thousand bucks. And so like for $300 more, your system's going to run five times more efficiently and you're going to use less cost over time. And we don't have to increase your bill by 15 grand. And so it's a pretty easy conversation. The reason you don't buy energy efficient appliances is because it's cheaper up front and you can't really tell on the back end because you're not watching your power bills that closely. With our system, your power bill's up front you're prepaying your utilities for the next 30 years. And so it's really easy to see what an inefficient appliance does to you. Wow. And it's part of the problem too. We'll go into buildings and this is the most common thing we see. The builder overspent on windows and underspent on insulation. Or they overspent on the HVAC system and underspent on windows and insulation. And it's you can't design in a vacuum, right? You have to design an integrated system and it has to take into account the power service for the home, the, how you're consuming it on site, and then the behavior of the homeowner. And if you don't do that, every one of your components is badly designed for the home, and it's going to be massively expensive. Mm -hmm. But if you design one clean integrated system, it's actually cheaper than being on grid. So one more hard-hitting question, because I know, I got to tell you, this is going to be one of our best episodes. Everything, Every <laughs> single bit you've said has been new knowledge to me. I am genuinely fascinated in awesome. everything you're working on. We haven't had anything that's touched this category of, of opportunity on our show. You're definitely first in utilities and construction. I, I'm wondering. <laughs> that's super exciting. <laughs> worst case scenario. Okay. Right? The people would say, what if we have clouds for two weeks straight? And now I'd sure. talk me through how the systems are designed to handle worst case scenarios. Yeah. And this really goes back to, it's a two problem issue. You can design backup really cheaply if you don't care about being net zero. But if you want both off-grid, reliable, and net zero, like all three of those things in the same bag, you have to move to geothermal. And that's the weird thing is like geothermal is the only way to solve that problem. Like Texas is a great example. You had four weeks, and I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know a lot about what happened in Texas. <laughs> you have four weeks of snow and rain and, and clouds. So like the solar didn't work, the wind didn't work, the batteries ran out, the natural gas dried up. That, that seems like an unanswerable problem, especially in an off-grid scenario. The typical answer, what 10 years ago you would have done is just throw a backup generator on, build a big propane tank and hope it never runs out. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> That's not a good answer. So what we've developed, and this is very new, it's one of the reasons I delayed our podcast a couple of weeks. It's like that new. We're putting in a low power mode. So this is like a multi-part solution to the problem. But the basic idea is uh, if you have a one-month storm, we can turn your home into low power mode and it will pull less than 500 watts during that month. Honestly, so <laughs> think about it. Your phone, when it gets to 20%, it says, hey, you want to go on low power mode? And now it lasts yeah. for however many more hours. You're doing that for the home. And, and like – 
And the funny thing is that wouldn't even solve the problem unless you add in this other thing is we use bifacial solar panels and a bifacial solar panel just means it's two-sided. And so if you get snow on the top of the panel, the bottom side still produces power. And so the reason we have a 500 watt number is because that's the bottom side production during a snowstorm. <laughs> like, it's like you have no. to be able to run on just the bottom side of the panels for a month. And we really came up with this concept and, and we're not the first people to come up with this by any stretch of the imagination. Lithium batteries are in electrical storage. They're really useful at storing 24 to 48 hours worth of power. Anything longer than that, they're a really bad solution. And inside of a home, over 85% of your power consumption is a heating or cooling consumption. In other words, you don't have a power problem. You have a BTU problem. You have a heating and cooling problem. And, and so you have to pick the most efficient heating and cooling system to solve that problem. So one of the things we do really weird that most people think is strange, we use the earth to store heat for storms. So like during the summer, when we have excess electricity from our solar, we run our geothermal unit backwards. We heat up the ground hot enough that during a storm in the winter, we can pull from that hot loop for a full month and massively reduce our home's power consumption. It's wrong in a hundred ways. Like every solar guy would hit me. Every geothermal guy has tried. There's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't do that, um, but that's what we do to get through one month of storms. And the thinking is, hey... If, if there's a, a storm that's that severe, lasting for over a month, we've had some apocalyptic event or something. <laughs> the funny thing is, it just depends on where you live. So like Brian Head and Duck Creek are mountain resorts that are, are like two hours away from me. And they have one month of snow all the time. Every year they have a month of snow. And we still need to be able to build an off-grid net zero home that's cost effective to live in Brian Head and Duck Creek. But they're ski resorts. It's literally a ski resort, which means when you have sun, when you have power, you have to store electricity and you have to store heat so that when you need it, you can use it. It's a really interesting problem. There's a hundred different questions of like, how do you do that without ruining everything? Because it's not how the system's designed. But the short answer is there is a way to do it. Alan, I'm very inspired because you know, <laughs> what I'd love to see is... 100% of all new development running through the Sun Homes formula. And I'm, yeah. I'm pretty optimistic. You're making me super optimistic that that's a future that's just a stone's throw away. What I'd yeah. love to know, what is the biggest barrier that's stopping Sun Homes or Sun Homes-like comps from being effectively the default way sure. new development starts? How do we get Sun Homes fulfilling 100% of all building potential going forward? Sure. It's kind of a multi-part problem. And I'm trying to think of a, of a concise way to answer. The first part of it's regulatory. You can't use on-site sewer systems in a lot of areas still. So regionally, they won't allow you to process your septic on-site and reuse it on-site, state by state, county by county. So some broader advancements there would be really useful. Number two is water availability. We can't develop every piece of land. We tell real estate developers like the new normal is you have to bring us land that has water under it and you have to have water rights. And if you have those three things, then we can help you develop. Even with our system, you have to solve those problems. So water availability, and they, they've been working on this in Africa for generations. How do you harvest water when it's when there's no water to harvest? And we've been looking into like harvesting humidity out of the atmosphere at night, like Bill Gates does in Africa, 
kind of solutions, but that's what it's going to have to be at some point in some areas. There's other strange rules like in Utah, if you're within 300 feet of a sewer system, like a city sewer system, you have to connect to it. So getting the normal municipalities on board is really big. And, and the way we do that is we show them our cost breakdown. Like we say, look, our system is actually way cheaper to deploy and run long-term than your system. And this is especially true in rural areas. So one thing most people don't know, co-ops is what they're called, cooperatives. They service the most rural people in America. And they exist because big power companies said it's literally not possible to service rural areas cost-effectively. And so the government came up with a program where they paid people, they basically gave grants, incentives, you know, low interest rates, loans for communities to pull in power to their community because it was not profitable to do that if you were the Rocky Mountain Power. Like our local co-op has a problem. They have one customer per mile of power line. And the mile of power line is $150,000 up front plus maintenance long-term. So the cost of the power line in our area per customer is more expensive than solar, geothermal, solar thermal. To do our package per home is cheaper up front than one mile of power line. And, and there's 908 co-ops in the U.S. And if you go overseas with Africa and the Middle East and areas that don't actually have India where they don't have any infrastructure yet, it's going to be really easy to leapfrog that infrastructure with off-grid utility services because it's structurally cheaper up front and massively cheaper long-term. So are you capitalized now? I I'm wondering, this feels to me like something that a breakthrough energy ventures, Gates's firm, right in yeah. the strike zone. H how are you thinking about capitalizing the company? And then how do we get Sun Homes, a thousand X scaled up ASAP. <laughs> yeah, man. So we took $200,000 of seed money from friends and family 18 months ago. We did just under 2 million in sales last year. Going into this year, we're hoping to do between five and 8 million in sales. So we're growing really quickly. And that has actually been extremely difficult to handle. So we're, we are in the fundraising process right now. And we have a couple of investors we think are serious, but the short answer is we're currently raising money and we're interested. Do you have a, a sweet spot for the type of partner? I, I would love to help you put, put you in touch yeah. with some people in our community. What's the sweet spot? Yeah. So what's interesting is when we've met with VCs and we've met with quite a few, the clean tech VCs said, we think you're construction and the construction VCs said, we think you're clean tech. <laughs> so we would love an infrastructure fund or like a clean tech construction tech VC. <laughs> like it needs to be that triangulated market because we're not traditional clean tech. We're not traditional construction tech. Like we talked to one of the big construction tech firms. And they're like, we're pretty sure you're just a solar company. So go talk to them. <laughs> would you it, consider yourself? I, I would love to hear if you had to, if you had to package this baby up into where you would or how you would categorize the company. So you are... Uh, absolutely a software company. You run are, yeah. the, the mitochondria of, of the system. It's the main unique thing we do. It's the but, thing we don't do off the shelf. But you also do part of the physical on-site build as um, well, or no? So we're moving to pre-assembled so that we can do pre-assembled off-site and then have local contractors do the final connection points. Anything that would take a distributed workforce can be handled by you know, an HVAC or an electrical contractor on any job site in the world. So it's really about the software and how the components integrate together and how the home is designed. 
If you pull those three things together, any electrician can do the final, the final connection. Wow. My mind is racing, man. We could talk for, for hours. <laughs> I, I am so um, massively thankful that Ross put you and I in touch. I, I'd love to, to end the conversation with just a fun question. Okay. Totally unrelated to, to Sun Homes. And it's around this notion of the idea graveyard. Ooh. One idea that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do, but for now is just rotting away in your idea graveyard. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So we have a saying in our company because we do so many weird things, specialize, automate, electrify. And so everything we approach, sewer, power, water, geothermal, specialize the equipment, automate the operation, electrify the control set, preferably like DC electrical, because that massively reduces your cost of all those components. So like extending out from that, the one thing I would love to work on that I'm not working on right now is I want to build electric self-driving tractors. So excavation equipment. And I wouldn't say it's totally a dig graveyard because I have some calls like next week on that, but it's definitely far enough out that I don't have the attention span for it. Alan, you are just this like crazy scientist meets entrepreneur. I, I would love to roll out the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything yeah, that you want to leave with yeah. our listeners? The floor is yours. So hydrogen is something we need and it needs to be useful really soon. And so a lot of people are working on producing hydrogen, using it through like an, an electro, like you produce it through an electrolyzer and then you store it and storing it's a big problem. And then using it is another like really big problem. What I would say is that hydrogen for homes doesn't make sense if you have to produce it on site, run it through a proton exchange membrane and turn it into electricity. Like you did it wrong if you did that. So if you're working on hydrogen for homes, this is actually the way you do it. Um, the way you produce hydrogen is you purify water, you run high voltage DC through it, and you heat it up. And then you take the gas that comes off of that, you compress it and you put it in basically uh, a plastic propane tank. All of our systems have everything that I just talked about. <laughs> like we have compressors, we have high voltage DC, we have hot water, we have an RO system that filters and purifies the water. All I need to run all of my houses on hydrogen instead of gas and like propane or natural gas, I need safe fireplaces and I need safe cooktops that run on hydrogen. If someone would please get me one of those two things, like <laughs> I need a safe fireplace that will not blow up inside my home. Like I'm designing my own home right now. Uh, we're putting in the equipment to produce our own hydrogen and store it on site. Because like fireplace and cooktop are the two things that I can't do with my current system. But I can do that with hydrogen. <laughs> so somebody please send me a hydrogen cooktop and a hydrogen fireplace that's safe to operate. That's what I want. <laughs> Request for startups in the flesh, um, Alan. We'll have to do a part two because I think what you're working on now with your own home warrants yeah. kind of its own conversation of its own. That would be fun. Um, a part two that's like an overview of how we're building our home. That would be yes. that'd be awesome. But until then, Alan, hats off to you. Congrats on your courage for jumping full force into this for your focus for your early success. I, I, I wish you just immense success. I'm looking forward to helping you in any way along the way. And honestly, man, just thanks for giving me an hour of your time. I really hey, do appreciate it. thank you. It. Shout out to everybody who's helped me because I don't have a degree in anything. I ask a lot of questions from a thousand different people and there's too many to name, but so many industry experts have helped us get where we are. Rock on, man. Thank you again, man. You're the best. 
Thank you. We'll see you. See ya. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bring you another new episode next Tuesday.